You're listening to the Ship Bob Operator Series. Each week, your host, Casey Armstrong, e-com veteran, is joined by founders, operators, and insiders who are bringing along their stories and data to give you the exclusive inside scoop and tactics from those who have been there, done it, and gotten their hands dirty. You can tune in for a live recording Wednesdays. Head to operators.shipbob.com for the details. But until then, enjoy this audio replay. Welcome, everybody. Episode 15 of the ShipBob Operator Series. As usual, I am extremely excited with the guest we have today. My uh, trusty co-host, Nick, was on vacation. Nick joined us, got us set up. So you guys all know the drill, how we start this. Where's everybody calling in from? Drop it in the chats. I'll go first. I'm calling in from Orange County, as usual. Taylor Edward, if you guys want to jump in before I intro you, where are you guys calling in from today? Yeah, I'm actually at Casey's house, um, also <laughs> in Orange County. Here, no, here Costa Mesa, Costa Mesa, you can't hear me. <laughs> so yeah, Costa Mesa, Orange County. Uh, very northern part of the state of Kentucky. So I've, I've been told that nobody knows where Cincinnati is on a map, but if you can picture Cincinnati, we are just across the river on the bourbon side of the river in the great state of Kentucky. Everybody's Googling that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Fun fact about that, the bridge between the two carries uh, a Edward Wimmer family uh, namesake on that bridge. So if you yeah. ever drive from Cincinnati to Kentucky, think of this man right here. Already learning stuff. I love it. So I'll, I'll run through some, let's see, Nick, geez, Nick, our trusty co-host has been in the most places than anybody. So he's calling in from New Hampshire. That's another place many of you might need to Google to see where that is. Uh, we got Montreal. Always, we have always have some international. Some more Orange County. We have Newport Beach, South Carolina, North Carolina, Calgary. Lots of Chicago. More Vancouver. We've got Haiti, Tennessee. More more Canadians with Toronto. We have Greece. I, I wouldn't mind being there. We have Mohammed from Egypt. We have another person from Massachusetts. So I like it. Santiago. I'm assuming Chile. Cool. So I'll introduce these people. So I've been fortunate to know Taylor for a bit. Um, we actually had one of his colleagues on on prior. So Taylor is the founder of Common Thread Collective, but today we're going to focus on 4x400, which is one of the companies that Taylor owns, which actually owns a handful of e-commerce brands. So they own Slick Products, Fielder's Choice, Bamboo Earth. They recently bought another company. I think they're on the verge of maybe even buying another. And so we are going to dig into that very shortly. We also have Edward Wimmer here. He's the founder of Road ID, and I, I love their tagline. So it's fuels adventure and provides peace of mind. So now I know why Taylor introduced us. It's a father and son business. They started over 20 years ago, and they have a rather um, inspiring founding story. So before we get into the questions, Edward, would love if you'd share a little bit more on you know the, the origin of Road ID. Yeah, I'd be happy to. It's a it's a fun story. I like telling it. If I get too long, you can just pull the cane in and pull me off stage. Uh, it goes back to my senior year of college. I was a good son to my my parents, so I would make those obligatory calls home uh, once every week or so to let them know I was still alive. And it was during one of those calls that I had told my dad that I had decided to run a marathon with some some buddies that were on the cross country team. So. He thought that was kind of silly that I would want to uh, to run a marathon. And in hindsight, he might have been right. 26.2 miles when you're a senior in college, it's not the ideal time to train. But nonetheless, that put me down this path of 
of running long distances and long runs on the weekend. For those of you that have uh, been down that path before, it's you know, 16, 18, 20 miles at a time on roads that aren't always conducive to, uh, to run on. So I told my dad on that phone call that I was doing this and um, he had this immediate concern, which was what would happen if you had an accident while you were out there training? And I said, oh, dad, everything's fine. You know, they're country roads. There's not that many cars. Don't worry about it. And he goes, no, I, I want you to carry some form of ID with you in case something happens. I, I want somebody to be able to call me. And I barely heard that went in one year. I went out the other. And that very next weekend went out for a long run on country roads and was nearly hit by a pickup truck. And so to avoid being hit by that pickup truck, I put myself in a ditch on the side of the road. And I like to say from that ditch, I had two very scary realizations. One is that I could have been hit by that pickup truck. I could have been fighting for my life in, in a local hospital. And at a time when you would want people by your side, the hospital staff would have no idea who to call, how to access medical information, or even know my name. And so that was pretty scary. I like to say the second, uh, the second and far scarier thing that I realized from that ditch on the side of the road was that for the first time in 21 years of life, I had to admit my dad might actually be right about something. <laughs> um, so it was, it was shortly after that that he and I in his basement and here in Northern Kentucky said, well, let's, let's see if we can solve this problem with a wearable ID that uh, communicates who you are, who to contact, and how to access medical information. So we, uh, we launched that business in, in 1999, put up our first website in uh, early 2000, and we waited for the orders to come pouring in, which they, they didn't. I will say that the day that we launched our first website, no shopping cart, nothing, just straight pass through, single order at a time, we launched the website, went to bed, woke up in the morning and had 19 orders. And, uh, you know, how, how are you generating awareness that way? Who knows? But we had this moment of arms raised <laughs> in a V and said, oh, my God, we're going to be rich. This is great. This online thing is easy. And then I looked at the orders in a little bit more detail and realized that it was one order duplicated 19 times. So I, I had first order of business as an e-commerce entrepreneur was to try to figure out how to credit somebody 18 times on one transaction. So. Flash forward uh, a small bit of time and we got our first uh, story from a customer that said, uh, it was actually a father who said, uh, who was calling us to let us know that because his son was wearing a road ID when he was out training for cross country, that him and his wife were able to be at the hospital to be with their son very quickly. Otherwise they would not have known their son was hit by a car while out, uh, while out training. You know, flash forward to today, to try to make this uh, story short, it's nearly every day somebody's reaching out to us saying, thank God for my road idea. And those range in scope from the very simple, I tripped over a curb, knocked myself silly. But we, when EMS showed up, all I had to do was show them my road ID and they, they knew who I was and who to contact. To the very uh, serious side of the scale, people said they wouldn't be alive today without it. To the very tragic, we had a mom post very emotionally on our Facebook page that said because her son was wearing it when he got hit by a car while uh, riding his bicycle, that she was able to get to the hospital in enough time to hold her son's hand to tell him she loved him one last time. So like heart-wrenchingly, like emotional stuff. But those stories across the scope is what keeps us, keeps me and our team energized to show up at work every day to do the work that needs to be done to tell this story to, uh, to the world. So that's, you know, it's kind of a fundamental belief that, that we have as a business is that you have to love what you do uh, so much that you think you'd be doing the world a disservice if you didn't do it. Like it's, that's very core and germane to who we are is that, you know, we are a very why and purpose driven company and we're doing it for something more than the bottom line. Yeah. Wow. That's, you, yeah, you must hear just some of the, the craziest stories. I know 
my colleague here at Chip Bob, Chris, who I've worked with for a long time, he he bikes like 70 miles a day. And he's had a couple of those pretty scary incidents because you don't know where, where you're going to be and how people will find you. So before we jump over to Taylor, Taylor did call out, you know, 2000s, like, you know, it was before e-commerce was cool, it was before a lot of these shopping carts even existed when they were literally just a shopping cart and a way to transact. Where and how did you even build that? And, and were you selling like directly to the consumer before that was even like a concept? Yeah, so we, uh, we started with paper flyers. Like I, for those of you that are old enough to remember, like an order form was actually on paper at one point. And uh, we took those paper flyers and we put them in running and cycling and health and fitness uh, centers. So your local specialty run shop and your local independent bike dealer and your local fitness centers, we had little easel displays that showcased the product that had a, had a order form in it. And at the top of that order form had four little blocks. Uh, it had our phone non- number on it. You could call us. It had a fax number on it. <laughs> you could do that. It had our mailing address so that you could come to, you could fill that out and mail it in. And then it had our, our website. And website, like I said, very simple, kind of one, one pager that had a buy now button where we collected the custom text and you went straight into checkout. We used authorized.net back in the day and we got all those orders all the order detail would come to us via email. And then we would take that and we would hand key it into a, an access database. And then we would take that access database data and we'd move it over to a laser engraver that could uh, that would engrave it. And then we got all those order. Then we got the items back and we laid them out on the floor in my dad's basement. And we just matched up like physical order forms with physical product and you know, hand wrapped it up and wrote addresses and put a stamp on it and sent it out the door. Like it seems comical now, <laughs> but back then it was was just trying to figure it out. And we figured some things out, but I also like to say that back in 2000, you know, the only, there weren't very many people selling online. Like it was us and this guy named Jeff Bezos. And one of the two of us really figured something out. Um, <laughs> and it, it wasn't this guy. I'll add my first experience with Road ID was we were selling Kalo. So Kalo, Silicon Ring Company that uh, my brother and his partner and myself started and when we were actually selling the company, we were meeting with a group of potential buyers. And one of them was full meeting. All they told me about was how we needed to be more like Road ID and how we needed to, to focus on developing this cult following. And it was so incredibly annoying that the whole time, I'm, who the hell is Road ID and what are these guys doing? And so then from there, I went out and checked out the product uh, and got to know Edward. And now I actually have a... Uh, deep appreciation for them and what they're what they've been doing but they have lots of fans around the world that have really developed a deep deep cult following with their business and we've had the pleasure of working with them now for what almost almost a couple of years now so really really cool story from the real rootsy days of e-com yeah i, I love it and, and i want to get back into some of your story there but taylor let's let's jump over to you and i always love how you're always trying to push the envelope forward whether it be on the agency side the brand side you know your your modern holding company side talk me through acquiring i think two businesses during COVID, or maybe one and a half right now and then also being part of a, an acquisition where you sold one of the businesses as well like how did those come to fruition how did you how were you able to nav- navigate that during you know a global pandemic it's sort of like when someone asks like how did you manage having being a parent of twins, like I have twin boys that are six. And the answer is like, I don't know, you don't figure it the hell out, right? Like, it's just one of those things that I think for so many of us, the thing about COVID is it's like, there is no playbook for what the hell to do right. And it's, I think so much of it is just one foot in front of the other. What's the problem to solve? And in e-com, 
what has happened is like out of the initial four weeks of like, oh no, everything's about to happen and be terrible. We're now all of a sudden on this different trajectory where things have gotten really, really great. And so for us on the acquisition side, so 4x400 is the company that we own where we acquire e-commerce businesses, usually smaller, usually sub a million dollars in revenue is our target focus of acquisition. And then we sort of apply our ecosystem against those opportunities to grow them. We think right now is an awesome time for acquisition. And part of that's because if you think about the way that businesses are traditionally bought and sold in e-com at that age, there's called uh, earnings or SDE, which is functionally just EBITDA plus whatever the owner of the business paid themselves as like the model for what the business can generate. So people usually pay on a trailing 12 month seller discretionary earning at that small stage of business. So if you think about this moment, if you look back 12 months and you think about the EBITDA and then you compare the current growth trajectory of what we're seeing happen, as you look out into the future and there's been lots of narratives about e-commerce fast forwarding into the future and all these things. We really believe that there's like this sort of crux of potential arbitrage where future of e-commerce is a much bigger pie. And if you're buying on previous performance and expecting different larger future outcomes, it's a really big moment. We've been really aggressive on the acquisition side right now. And then on the selling side, I think that was a long journey that was born out of a bunch of different reasons that are located and for a whole separate webinar um, in terms of selling Kalo that didn't start in COVID. It wasn't like we began that. It was more like actually just the culmination and the closing docs were actually before all of it as well. What I like that you call out there is, you know, trying to, I, I see consistently, you know, some of the, the smartest people I talk to, they'll really just simplify things to, you know, one or two items. And so here it's, you know, you're focusing on seller's discretionary earnings. And so whether you're running different marketing channels or you're on sales or you're on like the product side, it, obviously, it often comes down to, okay, one core metric. And then a lot of stuff feeds into that. So I just dropped a link from corporatefinanceinstitute.com. Maybe Taylor, you have some stuff on that, but maybe just talk a little bit more there on like, seller's discretionary earnings? And is that something that, that businesses should pay attention to? Or is that something that you as an acquirer look at? Because that's how that's one of the things that you're looking at to evaluate, if you will, and how much to pay for a business. Yeah, so I would say this, the metric comes into play, primarily like the brokerages. So if you guys know Quiet Light, or any of the groups that are out there brokering e-commerce um, for early stage businesses, this is traditionally the metric that they're using. And the reason is primarily because at the early stage, what you're dealing with usually is a single founder. And the question for that founder in selling the business is, what does the business have the potential to generate for me in terms of my earnings versus what um, should I pay, what should I receive as a transaction against those future earnings, right? So buying business is always some sort of discount of future revenue, right? Like So as a business owner, what I'm trying to buy is I'm trying to take future profit and buy it at a discount. Like that's what I'm attempting to do. And as a seller, what I'm trying to do is take future revenue and realize I'm in the present, right? So that's sort of the relationship that you're trying to create. And so we can we can use this idea of seller discretionary earning to go to the founder and be like, here's how we can create a deal. And most of our deals include the founder maintaining some equity position and where we can show them, here's how we create a better future for you together than we do, than you do on your own. And by showing them, here's your current earning potential based on your business. And here's the growth rate. And here's how much you'll make over the next six, 12, 18 months. And then we come in and say, Hey, we think we can make a lot more for you 
with this deal structure if we do it together? And that's sort of the basis for most of the conversations we have with founders at the early stage. When you get into much bigger businesses, Edward's size and beyond, usually you're looking more at EBITDA and it has to do with a broader set of earning potential of the business, not just the individual owner. I think it's interesting. I mean, there's just so many ways to buy and sell a business. And I know one of the common things that that people who are selling their business need to look at is, okay, I'm selling my business. I'm actually going to give up 100% of the equity, but maybe there's like an earn out or an earn out over time. And I'm actually on board for that period of time. And, I, and I'm responsible to deliver certain metrics or certain revenue numbers or EBITDA to then receive the rest of my earn out. Here, it sounds like you're approaching it kind of the opposite way where are, are they still involved at all? And they're actually still maintaining some so, equity? Uh, yeah, so so we've done five acquisitions. One is actually like just going to be announced any minute here. Uh, in four of the cases, the founder has stayed on as an employee of the business, and so that is that is a, a big part of it. And the reality is, with businesses this early stage, even just the idea of a guaranteed salary with health benefits is a massive potential access point to freedom. Because a lot of these businesses, if you think about, if you're making two hundred thousand dollars a year, five hundred thousand dollars a year as a business. As an individual owner of that business, your actual earning out of that when you subtract, you know, if you're just paying yourself on some sort of portion of the profit is usually pretty small in the short term. And so we can provide real security to them. We can say we're going to provide all this infrastructure around growing your business and that you're going to maintain a piece of equity such that we think your cash earning in the 12 months is going to be greater and your equity value in 12 months is also going to be greater. So it's sort of trying to craft a win-win scenario where we can take what they've demonstrated as product market fit for the product and then amplify it using our sort of tactical execution to create a, a scenario where we both win. But in a lot of cases, the founders do continue to be involved. I love it. So I have another question for you on something you touched on and, and then Edward will throw it to you with the same question. So something, Taylor, that you've been very public and bullish on is, because you mentioned we were talking about acquisition and acquiring companies but during COVID and how that's an opportunity. But you've been very public on acquisition of customers for these e-commerce brands, which I know is something that everybody here in the attendance is interested in. So what have you seen, let's say specifically on like Facebook and Instagram on acquisition arbitrage opportunities? How has that changed over time? Um, and then Edward would love to hear what you've seen as well. Yeah. So it's been a wild ride on that side of things in terms of what has happened. So if you look at, let's call the date, I think the, the D-Day that we all sort of remember, I use it in reference to the night that uh, Tom Hanks and uh, the NBA sort of cut out, which was March 11th. That's sort of like COVID D-Day in my mind. If you follow from that day forward, you have this really interesting um, pattern um, that many people went through, which was um, the week immediate following panic, right? A lot of our partners on the agency called us and were like, what are we going to do? Do we shut down spending? Is the world collapsing? Everybody thought things were going to go really bad. And so you had this pullback. And so what you see is sort of ROAS decrease, spend decrease. And then all of a sudden, everyone realized quarantining everybody into their homes actually has the opposite effect. The supply of ad inventory goes way up because we're all just sitting in our homes on our phones all day long. Then you have this decrease where there is a large swath of retailers with big budgets, the Airbnbs of the world, the travel companies, all these people that are being really dramatically inflated, all the budgets out. And for about six March, sort of let's call it 20 through the end of April was truly a moment of arbitrage. It was decreased CPM pricing where you were able to access ad inventory at a cheaper rate. And our, we saw 
businesses, setting record revenue months in April, almost across the board for a lot of brands where April was this massive, suddenly it was like Black Friday was there in April. Now, of course, as any supply and demand marketplace will dictate, when it starts happening, what everybody does is they pump their ad dollars up, 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 and the CPMs came right back with it. So by the end of April, beginning of May, you were back to that almost pre-COVID level, but you're still seeing an increase of volume even at that CPM. So we see less of this like arbitrage, higher efficiency that we saw in April, whereas May and June are still strong. And one metric I'll give you guys a little indication of are on the agency side. So GMV, which you mentioned earlier, Casey, gross merchant volume, just total basic revenue across all of our clients. Q1 for CTC was about $50 million across our portfolio in the first three months. The second quarter, that same portfolio of clients did $98 million in revenue. And that is that is not supposed to be the case, right? From Q1 to Q2. Normally, it's a small increase. Total portfolio revenue almost doubled from Q1 to Q2. And a lot of that was back off the back of that sort of arbitrage in April and May. Long answer, but hopefully that's helpful. Yeah, very, very helpful. And it's, you know, when, when these macro shifts happen it's identifying like you know wh- where where is there where is there opportunity you, like you said some these these large spenders were pulling back they were almost essentially stopping their spending which was again opening up cpm opportunities and then uh, edward with you because i don't know how seasonal your business is and and how the demand has happened there as people are starting to stay indoors or going outside but what have, what have you seen on that front I would say from an uh, ad perspective, Taylor covered uh, covered it really well, and my thoughts mirror his. Uh, my D-Day mirrors his as well. March 11th was definitely the day, kind of the uh, oh crap moment where we thought, what is this thing and how bad is it going to be for you know not only the world, but our business specifically? And uh, on March 11th, we saw nine straight days of sales decline, and we're kind of holding on to our seats. I don't, I don't know that at, at that point we reached out to... You know, there were certainly conversations with our with our partners like CTC and 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 how we're going to deal with that. But one thing we didn't do was pump the brakes. We knew everything that Taylor was was saying was accurate, and that uh, ads were were being had at a discount. That people were going to be paying attention more than they ever had because they had more time to scroll scroll through their devices. And uh, so on the on the paid digital side of things, everything Taylor said spot on. I would add I would add to that that we also like. All other e-com started seeing our emails getting paid attention to more. So open rates started to uh, to balloon into the 30s and sometimes 40% open rates. And click-through rates were going along with that. So we had this nine straight days of decline where we were holding on to our, our, our seats a bit. And then it came back around. And March ended up as a with a growth month uh, for us. We saw April was you know 40% or something like that over over prior April, May, and June have been uh, have been the same experience. So business is growing faster than we predicted pre-COVID, mainly because of everything we're talking about. People are spending more time on their devices. They have time to to see the ads. The ad inventory is going up. the The CPMs went down for for a while. The, we also in our email messaging strategy and our SMS messaging strategy, we we started leaning into that harder because people were paying attention. We said, okay, what else can we put in front of them at this unique time that would uh, that would drive additional opportunity? And so uh, we added a couple of promotions to the the schedule, the marketing schedule that we didn't plan on doing. We did a 
And this is a, a unique offer that many people are scared to do, but our metrics on it say that it's uh, it's perfectly safe, but we did a buy one, get one free gift card offer. So buy a $25 gift card, get a second gift card uh, of the same value for free. We did that at the end of March and that was hugely successful. In April, we do a spring sale, which is typically our uh, second largest moment uh, in the in the calendar year and we were we were a little worried about should we do this is the timing right for offering a spring sale is is the world going to pay attention to a company doing a promotion and, and we said you know what I, I think I think they are so we put it out there and we had a a record spring sale beat Black Friday Cyber Monday uh, numbers and I, I think Taylor would tell you uh, his other ecom clients saw similar things happen they were lots of days that were better than Black Friday, Cyber Monday happening in the midst of all this craziness. First, for the audience, usually I announce a giveaway at the beginning, and then you guys flood us with questions the whole time. So we'll, we'll do a giveaway. I don't know, Taylor or Edward can throw something out there, but drop your questions in. Hey, Todd, thanks for jumping in the chat. So Todd called out how Amazon, who obviously is a rather large spender everywhere, they completely stopped spending on Google Shopping, and it was noticeable when they came back. and And as Taylor mentioned, you know, they ran into fulfillment issues, and you know, it's uh, and I'll, I'll quote Todd here because I'm obviously a bit biased, but you know, it's why having an off Amazon store or at least an off Amazon presence yeah. and three PL in controlling parts of your supply chain really matters because Amazon was picking winners and losers, and they were having to kind of do that more at scale. But you know, we had we've had people on this series before that spoke about how they've been. Um, I know like with Chad Rubin for Think, Think Crucial, he's been running a, you know, a multi-million dollar or eight-figure Amazon store for over a decade. And they were telling him what he could and couldn't sell. And he couldn't pick up the phone and talk to anybody. And they were saying, hey, you can sell this one thing, but that pretty much identical thing, you can't sell. And there was no way to resolve that. So you know, it was just interesting to navigate that. And so I'd love to get back into some of the marketing and sales questions. But I do have a question here from from Alvaro more on the supply chain side. And so Edward, let's start with you and then jump back over to Taylor. So, and, and this is very pertinent for COVID and I think people are still dealing with this today, but how do you do, uh, deal with delays in production and being late to deliver goods to customers without losing them? And so how about let's just start with like higher up in the supply chain? Like how are you guys able to navigate that? I'm, Edward, I'm not sure where you guys manufacture. We do all of our um, all our laser engraving, customization, decorating in house. Uh, pick, pack, and ship is done in house, but we do that with components that we source from all over the world, including Asia. So, we had a unique set of circumstances going into into COVID, and that was the beginning of the year was running hotter than we forecasted. So we were already in a higher growth mode than we anticipated and forecasted on the supply chain side for. So. We were trying to fix that shortage as we went into Chinese New Year. And then, of course, out, coming out of Chinese New Year was COVID. So we keep a pretty large supply of safety stock uh, on hand. And we're able to do that because the component pieces are relatively low cost. So we can, we can inventory a lot of it. But we were running low pre-Chinese uh, pre New Year. Chinese New Year's happened. And then uh, COVID coming out of that. And I would say for us, we just got lucky. We got lucky in the fact that we have built a very strong relationship with our, our partners there that are willing to jump through hoops for, for us when things get sideways. And sideways meaning that you know, COVID happens or sideways meaning that uh, there was a, a production run on, on, a, on an, a component that just didn't, and this could, be, this could be at any time of the year, production run comes through and the, and the quality is bad. So 
I, I guess my pitch here is when you are developing partnerships, make sure that you are with the right partners that will be willing to jump through hoops for you when things go sideways, and they will, whether it's a pandemic or whether it's a a tariff issue or whether it's a quality control issue. You need to be working with people that have your back. That's why I like partnering with guys like Taylor because I know it's a solid partnership and he's got my back if something goes south. So relationships, very key. But there, there certainly have been times in, in our history where we have not been able to deliver on what we said we were going to do. And I've always deferred to full transparency, honesty, and a little bit of humor when those things happen. So it's always, it's always best to look at issues as if they are opportunities. So we fail to deliver. Uh, we say we're going to ship something on the first of the month, yet we don't actually end up, we're not able to do that until the 15th. Well, we got to get out in front of that. We got to message that appropriately and as immediately as possible. And then we've got to make good on it as a company, not as a business, but as people. So we mm -hmm. got to approach our customers like people and tell them that we are earnestly sorry and that we will make it right. And that might even be giving them the product for free or a steep discount or a gift card to come back and buy something else for, uh, for free. I, I love that. And that's been yeah. very consistent with some of the other people we've talked to is just at the end of the day, there's always a person on the other end. And it's that, that honesty and transparency up front, especially with what's happening lately, you know, people's stress levels are a little bit higher. And then it's that strong relationships with partners. And that starts on day one and starts how you treat people. Because I think once COVID hit, there were some companies that were like scrambling and they're trying to forge these partnerships and relationships seemingly overnight when it happens like over, you know, years or, or decades. And so it's, it's cultivating that from day one. And, and Taylor, you want to jump in? Yeah. So and this is, this is, one of Edward's superpowers is that kindness equals anti-fragility as a business. And, and what I mean by this is what he just described is that the way that I know he has an interaction with me is that if there was ever a moment where he called me and said, hey, I need net 60 terms, here's X, Y, or Z are going on, or hey, he's been so transparent with me about the way that they're bringing things in-house and how they're going for it, giving me room to plan for it. I have a relationship of trust and feel genuinely cared for by him. And what's an indication there to me is I know his suppliers, he would have the same type of relationship with them. And I know that his customers, he has the same type of relationship with them. So by the time that you get to the point where you're asking customers to be gracious with you because you are not fulfilling their orders, the question has been is, who have you been up to this point for them? And if you are somebody who has reflected a level of care for them and built a culture and community around your brand where this idea that I am genuinely for you is part of the ethos of your brand, then you will receive that back. But if you wait until that moment when you need something from somebody, whether it's a manufacturing partner, your agency partner, or your customer, and it's the first time you gave a shit about what they felt or what was going on for them, you will not get it in reciprocation. Like, And that's just the bottom line that I think people miss out on and why some people were really well suited to take advantage of this moment. I think Edwards, this is how he lives his life. And it's reflected. You heard his story in the beginning about his customers. It's real for him. And you can't fake that relationally. 100%. And, and then Taylor, with you running multiple businesses, how are you guys able to navigate manufacturing or supply chain issues up front before you're able to even like, especially because like you saw this arbitrage opportunity from like a demand gen perspective, but to make sure that you could actually yeah. supply that. Yeah. So forecasting into this moment is one of the hardest, hardest things to do. And so what I would say is the answer to this question is really relative to a lot of things in your individual business. One is the evergreen value of your inventory. So like, I'll give you an example, our business where we sell these wallets, 
we have very few SKUs and this, this billfold is our best selling SKU. If we order over order inventory now, we know eventually that SKU will sell. It never goes bad sitting on a shelf. I don't have to worry about it going out of season. This has been our core SKU for two years. There's very low risk in over ordering inventory or over forecasting demand as long as we have the cash flow to support it. So in that case, really low risk. Where you get into risk is product that can go bad sitting on a shelf or that's on trend or seasonality, in which case it is incredibly difficult right now to forecast. And I empathize with that. But your cash position really matters. What can you, how, how much can you afford to be wrong? And in which direction do you want to be wrong? And then what is the evergreen value of that purchase for you is huge. And those are hard things to consider. And it's so relative to each business and also like the timeline of your demand, uh, of your production cycles and all these things like are all parts of why it's so important to continue to work your supply chain to be as flexible as possible. Having multiple manufacturing partners in multiple countries, having uh, terms with your manufacturer that are as latent as possible so that you don't eat up cash. Like All of these things enable you to maximize these moments when they come, but they have to be done ahead of time in preparation for being able to move through. I love that. And so a a question that I have um, from you, Edward, and and it kind of relates to making sure that you have know, let's say the right supply in advance for different products um, as like the demand fluctuates over time. And you, you know, you guys don't have like a, a product that can really expire either, but you have products with Fitbit, Garmin, Apple, Samsung. I'm very curious in how you've seen those sales fluctuate over time. Cause obviously Apple's come in very strong into the market. So I guess anything that you can share there on how that's kind of evolved. And if you've seen anything interesting over the last couple of months as well. I would say that that product line has evolved more over the past couple of, of years. So, you know, connected fitness, wear, wearables has really kind of started with Fitbit and then everybody got in the game culminating with, with, with Apple. But um, we used to make custom IDs for every wearable. So we would, every, ver- every Fitbit version that came out, we would have an ID that fit on that wearable precisely that was made just for that version. So whether it was the Fitbit Flex or the Fitbit Charge or the Fitbit Ionic, whatever, all, all of the different models, we had one that, that fit. And uh, what we found there is that was just incredibly difficult to do, even with a tight relationship and having drawings of those products ahead of time, making, making and forecasting product that fitted device that the device maker had no idea what the demand was going to be uh, for was, was really challenging. So we would end up with this you know, huge glut of inventory for a, for a product that fit the Fitbit Flex that was only around for a year before they moved on to the next, uh, next model. So we were always trying to, to play catch up. Apple is the company that approaches product design in a different way. They're not constantly trying to change the form factor of the product. They like to make a bulletproof product and, and keep it the same for quite some time. So that's the one ID that we make for a device that we make specifically for now. Everything else, we've got a more of a generic, uh, what we call a sidekick, that will attach in an elegant way, but just not in a, in a precision way to those other devices. So I would say that, you know, the lesson there is it's really hard when you start letting somebody else control your destiny. So we stopped doing that. We stopped trying to make IDs for every specific device and said, how can we do it in a more generic way and still present a product that we're really proud of? Have you seen Fitbit evolve their product design or development by seeing the success that Apple's had and where they're like constantly iterating with like this new product or do they just keep running their business as is? 
I think we've certainly seen them uh, skew more to a uh, an Apple Watch lookalike product. Okay. So, and I think their uh, their product designs have a longer shelf life now than they used to. And I'd say Garmin's doing the same thing. Garmin has a is a different challenge in that they are servicing a a, a, a very very specific niches in the active lifestyle community. So a an elite runner is going to want something different than for their their on their wrist than a casual weekend uh, runner walker and a, a cyclist is going to want something very different so they're they're trying to reach a a niche where apple and uh, and fitbit really aren't they're trying to reach the mass interesting so so we have a great question from todd it's actually something that i think about a lot and it's been pretty common with just e-commerce owners lately which is any suggestions on how to market to your existing customers if you're largely a single product brand that is non-consumable or recurring? And so what's been pretty popular lately is, is these brands will launch their hero product and then they'll try to expand from there. And so I think it's evaluating what to expand from so that you're actually delivering what your customers want. So for example, with Fielder's Choice, you know, Taylor mentioned they've got the wallet and that's their core product. And then they've started to launch other products. They've got these cool like 70s hats and other things with the, which they've started to experiment with. And then of course, with Edward, they've got the road ID and now they have other accessories and apparels. And so, you know, both Taylor and Edward, anything you can share on things that you've learned that have gone well, or maybe have gone horribly wrong where you've got this hero product and then you start to expand into, into other areas. So, and I think Edward's a great example of this. I think about product development in two categories. Are you looking to increase the LTV of the existing customer base or are you trying to enter a new market and acquire different customers, right? Like it's an important question to sort of answer. So the example being, do you expand from just having a Fitbit model to also having a Garmin model to also then maybe having, you know, some alternative form factor of the product that you could sell in different colors to people? Like, so with Kalo, it was like, if I'm going from selling a, silicone ring in black to also having one in cool colors, that's about increasing my LTV of the specific existing customer base. But when I wanted to go into a new product category, we introduced, and this is a similar path that they did, like dog tags made of silicone. And now all of a sudden we're into a pet category and that's like an entirely different thing. So like with, with FC Goods, we think about our belts and our dot kit and our hats, all about expansion of the existing customer set. But we're working on things like leather goods made from basketballs as an expansion into a different subset of consumers that aren't interested in baseball. So like additional baseball products equals LTV uh, model products made from basketball leather equals new customer acquisition. And I think the distinction between those two things is helpful when thinking about product development. I, I, I love that. I would also add to that I'm a big believer in the in the simple metrics of e-commerce, which is, you know, we call it our economic engine. This is one of the first things that that Taylor and I found that we had in common is the economic engine for e-commerce is as simple as con, uh, sessions times conversion rate times average order value equals revenue. So those are like the three front end big drivers of e-commerce. How many people can you get the store of those people? How many of them can you convert into customers? And as you're converting them, how much uh, will they spend? Lifetime value on the, on the back end, lifetime value is also very important. And we also look at referral rate. How many, uh, how many of our customers can we turn into evangelists that are telling other people uh, uh, about our product? So I would, you know, lifetime value gets a lot of attention. But before I had a really deep conversation on lifetime value, I would ask, is that the right metric to be focusing on? Because there are there are really 
there are five really powerful metrics there. And it doesn't always have to be about product development and lifetime value. It may be more impactful to turn the customer into an evangelist. And, and instead of trying to get five extra dollars out of customer A, how do I get customer A to bring me five new prospects? I love that. I mean, there's just so many different ways to run a business and, and evaluate it. And I think what both Taylor and Edward have stressed today is trying to simplify the way that you look at your business. Because I think a lot of, and I've made this mistake personally, where I think when you're earlier on in your career, you start trying to overcomplicate everything and look at every single metric under the sun and you want everything to be green or up into the right, but it doesn't really matter. There's usually a handful of things that are going to move your business or put you in a position to succeed. And then you can start to evolve how you look at your business from there. So here's a question from Annie. I'll pose it to you guys. You can. I, I think I know what you'll both say. I know what I would say. But um, so I actually should direct this at Taylor. So maybe Edward will get to you next. So Taylor, would you recommend to launch an e-commerce startup now based on the fact that it's hard to forecast sales and revenue or to hold off a bit until the market situation is more stable? So this is, this is an easy one for me because our ability as human beings to determine when the future will be better than the present is we are horrible at it. You are incapable of determining macroeconomic environments in the future. If you could do that, you should not be running e-commerce businesses. You should be making tons of money in some other forum. So the answer is right now and over the course of your business, the key to success is figuring out every dang problem that shows up along the way. And there's going to be endless amounts of them. Uh, you know, Edward's been doing this in his business for 20 something years along the way. There's been lots of different things that have come up. The key to survival is can you identify the problem with clarity and solve it? And so the answer is start right now and get going. Now, I get your question. You're trying to ask about the e-commerce environment. And I do believe this is a very unique, special moment. But I can't promise you that tomorrow is not going to be the end of the earth for some reason. Like, I just can't tell you that. And so the answer is whenever you run a business, you're going to encounter problems. And so if it's in your heart, freaking go for it. Love it. And, and the counter to maybe tomorrow's the end of the world, but tomorrow's maybe when, you know, Facebook arbitrage goes on hyperdrive. And so you, totally. you never know. I would put a qualifier there to say, whenever you're ready to work your ass off. And if that moment's yeah. not today, I, then don't do it. Because starting any business, whether it's e-commerce or brick and mortar or a kiosk, uh, kiosk at the, at the mall, it, it's hard. Like business is hard and you will run into tons of of problems and if you're not ready to to do that then don't because it won't work right. so here's a related question from amir and we'll, we'll see if you guys keep uh, the advice simple as you've been professing so if you could start from scratch today what would you focus on first and what would you do differently so in some ways, I get to start from scratch all the time, right? Like we buy businesses all the time. Now we're not starting from zero, right? We're buying businesses usually at about hundred dollars to $500,000 in revenue, but we get to start over all the time. And the way we sequence through it, it's like pretty principled. We want to examine the supply chain to ensure we have, we look for like 70 plus points of margin. That's like a relentless pursuit that we're after. And then we work through that growth equation that Edward just described. Visitors, where is our traffic coming from? We break it down by every channel. So meaning email, direct, organic, paid social, organic social, paid search, email, referral. What can we do in each of those channels? Conversion rate. We're going to examine the website and make sure that we are merchandising correctly and that there's no breaks in it, that the site speed's correct. And then LTV, we're going to explore and understand the consumption rate. Of the, like We're just going to sequence through those things in a principled way. But this idea of like gross margin, ensuring that I am setting up a game I can win at. 
is really, really critical. So we're going to work through that on the supply chain side. And then we're going to work through that growth equation, which I'll send you guys a, a little, I'll drop a little link to a YouTube video that sort of talks about how we approach this from a principled manner in terms of the, when we say the growth equation, what I mean, but it is pretty basic in that way. There really aren't that many levers to improving your e-commerce site. You get people to show up, you get them to buy more often when they do, or you get them to spend more money when they buy. Like those are the only levers. And if you just are relentless about focusing on each of them, you can sort of on your business to growth, meaning like incremental day-by-day improvements in those areas and you'll get better. I love that. Please please do drop in that video. And I think that what you mentioned there too, with it, which is the incremental change, and uh, that's something that I've you know, really embraced, I'd say, with, with our CEO over here at ShipBot, which is you, you set these goals and you want to achieve them. But if you missed, like that's not necessarily the end of the world as long as you're making progress towards them. If you're showing like the incremental improvements and so you want to like accomplish everything under the sun like yesterday, but that never happens. And so with, are you doing the right things to put yourself in a position for tomorrow and are you seeing those incremental changes? So Edward, other than not receiving orders via fax, what would you do differently or I don't know if you had to start road ID again today? A fundamental belief that we have is that it's always a people problem or a people opportunity. So like we have in business, you'll make people mistakes. So to the best of your, to the best of your ability, you got to align yourself with the right people as quickly as you can kind of taking a step back and thinking about e-commerce today versus back then. I mean, I, I would give the advice that if you're not already on Shopify or actively working to get on Shopify, then except for a very few exceptions, you're likely making a mistake. Like Shopify is the platform of the moment. Will it always be? Probably not. But for now, like this, it is the place to to be with your uh, e-commerce company. It makes it so much easier. And I come from a history of if we wanted to do anything, we had to custom build it. We custom built our own our own inventory system, our own order order management, our own e-commerce storefront, our own pick pack and ship software, our own laser engraving software. Like we did it, we had to build it all, and that's really hard and really expensive. And picking the right software is so much easier today. So just pick the right software, get on Shopify, get a Clayview account, hook it up, and then pick the right uh, partners to help you start serving ads. What did you, I, I like the subtle plug for Taylor, what was the first platform or cart that you guys used? It was all custom until we migrated to Shopify, which did not happen for us until September of 2017. Yeah, he, wow. called, he called it the Wimmer Wallet. That's what he told me he was built on when I when I first <laughs> the Wimmer Wallet. What's well, yeah. crazy? I should just build up your built with too, and it's crazy. I mean, just like the software that's available to like make all of our lives easier. Obviously, that's what we're focusing on here at ShipBob. That's what Shopify is focused on. I mean, from you guys have Google Analytics to Facebook Pixels to just Uno to Zendesk to a bunch of other products, and it's just it allows you to just plug and play so quickly and act as like a pseudo developer, even though most of us know zero code or very little. And because you don't, you're not trying to build a dev shop. You're trying to build like with an e-commerce engine that pays for them. It's, it's the inverse. Yeah, okay. so we had a, we had a software engineering team of eight folks costing us more than a million dollars a year just to do de- development. And not all of that uh, was replaced by, by off-the-shelf ap- applications, but we went from a million dollars a year to run a store to $2,000 a month with Shopify Plus. Jeez. That's ins- insanely different. Yeah. Now, migrating, migrating platforms is never easy, and I don't want to minim- minimize 
those, you know, if we've got folks out here that are, that are on Magento and they're thinking about a switch, like that is not easy and it has to be done very carefully and it has to be done with sensitivity to those metrics that I talked about earlier. When we, when we made our shift from custom to Shopify, we had really fine-tuned our experience. Like we knew, we knew how to increase average order value. We knew, we knew how to fine-tune conversion rate before we switched. And when we migrated to Shopify, we saw all three of those core metrics, sessions, conversion rate, AOV, all take a dip. And when any one of those dips in your business, it's a material impact. When mm-hmm. all three take a dip, it's, it's nearly catastrophic. So you have to be careful. And then uh, let's see, Patrick asked, what plugins you suggest to using along with Shopify for shopping cart to nudge additional sales? Taylor dropped orderbump.io. It might be Shopify plus only, but maybe you guys can check that out. And then I also dropped a link to built with. And so I get a plugin question or app question all the time. I would look at the brands that, that you strive to, I don't know, maybe become in the future and you can just drop them in and built with and, and see what, what different products that they use. And then Taylor called out Carthook. Um, they continue to innovate on the upsell cross sell experience. They've got a great team over there, so they're they're definitely another one to check out. Attentive. Um, if you're if you're not doing SMS marketing, it's time to start. Um, it's and Attentive is the partner that we've uh, selected for, and it just it just crushes. So it's almost the top of the hour. I've got one more tactical question, and then the question that I always end it with. But is so from a tactical standpoint. For these these brands looking to scale today, which channel would you focus on the most and why? I'm always careful with general answers, but this is one that I feel fairly confident in. Like Facebook is the greatest advertising platform ever built in human history, and it's just not close. Like um, in terms of demand creation, there's just nothing that is competitive with it. That's unfortunate. I wish there were lots of tools that were just as awesome. And there was so many different ways to drive customer acquisition. And it was like this wonderful, diverse cornucopia of traffic sources. But that's not the reality. They're just better than everybody else. So there's a lot of dollars to be spent there before you start chasing what I call the siren song of media diversification and trying all these other channels that you're going to spend money in because they're going to be less efficient and you're going to not be as effective. Now, Google's super powerful if you've got big search volume and you know YouTube's promising and TikTok's cool and Snapchat's great. You know, like there's lots of stuff out there, but dial in your Facebook media buying before you move out from there. Because if you can't win there, you're going to have a hard time being more effective in other places. I keep wanting to prove Taylor wrong on this uh, topic, and I've yet to be able to do it. I, it will happen at some point. I'll find something better than Facebook. But uh, I would say the only thing better than Facebook that exists today will always exist forever is word of mouth. Yep. So if you, and that's why I, I mentioned earlier about treating your customers like people, like it's the goal has to be at the end of your transaction to have a relationship with, uh, to have your, your customer have a relationship with not a company, not a brand, but a person, a people, and have them want to scream about you from the rooftops of, of, social, of organic social media. You yeah. want them talking about the experience they had with you over the dinner table, out at the bars, whenever that happens again. You just want them telling people about you. And that has always been and will always be the single most powerful marketing lever that exists. If you're going to put money into something, it's got to be Facebook. But, but yes, but the thing about this is that like those, these things are so intimately linked where part of the reason Edward is able to drive 
revenue through Facebook at the scale that he is, is because when he acquires a customer, they bring more customers, right? And so these things are not sort of like two sides of a different, like they're two sides of the same coin. They're not you know, unlinked. And so you, the more ability that you can pay to acquire a customer and that customer becomes exponentially valuable to you, the more you're going to be able to scale your customer acquisition. And so these things enable each other in a way that's really, really powerful. Agreed. And I think it's also leveraging the customer voice in in your Facebook and Instagram marketing. And, and because of the medium that's so visual or the video, you can leverage them together. And I think what, what COVID has provided, if we're going to look at the silver lining is I think customers and brands are much more open to having this, this conversation between each other. And so I think it's, it's really doubling down on that. And then as Taylor said, you know, very quickly, Facebook. And it's just like if you're doing B2B marketing, it's often SEO or Google AdWords. And it's you can you can grow such a large business off of one channel and you don't want to be beholden to that single channel, but it's making sure before you start chasing all those shiny pennies that you're spending your time properly on maximizing the revenue from one channel. And so again, I know we're almost at the top of the hour. I appreciate everybody for joining. Edward and Taylor, appreciate you guys for being here. We'll be here again, as always, next Wednesday, three o'clock Eastern time. The question I have to close this out Edward, let's start with you, and then we'll throw it over to Taylor. Um, we kind of touched on this a little bit before, but if you were to give the people in the audience one piece of advice, what would that be? It would go back to the uh, the customer service element. And way, the way we articulate that is that we want to deliver a product, service, and journey so blindingly awesome that your customers can't help but share it. So blindingly awesome that customers can't help but share it. Do that. It'll be easier to acquire customers. Yeah. And, and so Edward went to his mission statement and I would do the same. Our mission statement is about helping entrepreneurs achieve their dreams. Figure out why the heck you're doing this. Um, because you can spend a lot of time, energy, and emotion doing something for reasons that you'll end up two years and have no idea why you're doing it. Business is incredibly powerful and it can enable you to do a lot of things in life. Figure out and make sure you're not just trying to fill some void that can be done in a much less painful way. And then figure out what the point of it is. Like start from the at that end point, at least an idea of it. I see that a lot for my, I've experienced that myself. I see that for a lot of our founders. Um, so start there. Completely agree. Great way to close this out. Again, Taylor, Edward, thank you so much for joining us. Everybody in the audience, I know you have a lot you can do. So as always, really appreciate it. And uh, we'll see you guys next week. See you guys.